I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 64, Twilight of the Miloslavskis. Thanks for listening in. So, last time we covered some diplomatic toing and froing between Russia and Persia, the Russo-Turkic War of 1735-1739, to the latest in a series of wars that were fought between Russia and the Ottoman Empire to establish regional dominance, and an outbreak of the plague, and then we finished off by looking at the plans that the Empress Anna Ivanovna was putting in place to continue slowly and carefully Russia's journey along the path of westernisation. All of which got us to the late 1730s. In this episode, we'll be concentrating on further events centred around the Russian court in St. Petersburg, which, taken as a whole and as per the deliberately mysterious and enigmatic episode title, may or may not point to the beginning of the end of the Miloslavsky branch of the Romanov dynasty. But there's no need to worry or get too concerned at the moment, because I know which way things are going to go. But before we get into all of that, I just wanted to quickly mention that the Patreon subscription-only service is going great guns. We're most of the way through a multi-part series on the history of Siberia. We'll soon be starting a series on prominent Russians from the last couple of centuries. And the first will be on the founder of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. And there are also episodes on the history of the Russian alphabet and the Old Believers. So if you want to sign up to get these members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes ad-free content, and written transcripts for the price of around a cup of coffee a month than you can in a couple of ways. You can sign up via the podcast website, that's historyofrussia.net. Just click on the membership page or the Patreon logo 
on the homepage. Or you can go directly to patreon.com forward slash history of Russia and sign up there. Okay, that's it. If everyone's ready, let's do some history of Russia. So, St. Petersburg, 1738. The Empress Anna, now 44, is happy, settled and content. Her niece, Anna Leopoldovna, had finally seen the light. She'd fallen hopelessly in love with and had married her foreign-born prince, Anton Ulrich of Brunswick. They have a healthy four-year-old son, the Miloslavsky Romanov succession has been secured, and Elizabeth Petrovna, well, frankly, who cares? Except none of that was true. But back in 1733, all of what I've just described looked to be very much on the cards. So what had gone so badly wrong? Well, we know that when young Anna had been first introduced to Anton, it had all been a bit of a damp squib. Their relationship seemed cordial and they were polite and kind to one another, but as the months and then the years went by, it never really developed into anything. Anna Leopoldovna, it seems, just wasn't that interested. The Empress and her lover and chief confidant, Ernst Biron, fed up with the waiting, hoping and praying for things to improve, thought that they had the solution. And they decided that the best course of action was to send Anton Ulrich away to spend a few months on campaign with Munich at the Crimean front, which they thought would achieve two things. It would toughen the boy up, make a man of him and bring him to his senses. And in the meantime, his absence would, they hoped, make young Anna grow fonder of him and bring her to her senses. Which, when you look at it in the cold light of day, sounds a pretty odd or desperate way to go about things. And anyway, everyone, the Empress and Biron included, had missed the point, because young Anna couldn't wait for Anton to be out of the way, and that's because she was infatuated with someone else. Well, actually, she would go on to be infatuated with more than just one somebody else. The initial recipient of young Anna's attention, or perhaps it was the other way around, was her Baltic German governess and close friend, Madame de Adecas. Now, no one knows for certain what the nature of this relationship was. It could have been sexual, it could have been platonic, but it certainly drew enough attention to cause eyebrows to be raised within the gossiping circles at court, but then, to be fair, what didn't? However, at some point in either 1835 or 1836 came stronger rumours of further romantic liaison between Anna and the Saxon ambassador Count Maurice Linard and between Count Linard and Madame de Adacasse. And this time the gossipers, as we'll see, appeared to be on the right track. Well, the really odd thing about these relationships is that they seem to be completely out of whack with young Anna's character. Reports from the time paint a picture of the princess as being someone who was, well, there's no easy or polite way to say this, plain, dull and boring. Take the following observations from the British consul's or resident's wife, a certain Jane Rondeau, who would write and publish a collection of letters from the 11 years she spent in St. Petersburg, and I'm quoting here from Simon Seabag Montefiore's The Romanovs. The heiress is neither handsome nor genteel. She is grave, seldom speaks, and never laughs. A gravity deriving from stupidity 
rather than judgment. Ouch. Eventually, rumours of these affairs reached the Empress and Biron, and they both came to the conclusion that action needed to be taken, otherwise there would never be a marriage, and if there wasn't a marriage, there would be no Miroslavsky Romanov heir. Anton Ulrich of Brunswick was recalled from the army, Anna Leopoldovna was put under what amounted to a temporary house arrest, Madame de Adekas was expelled from Russia, and Count Linar was recalled to Saxony. The Russian court was in a frenzy. What had happened? What was going to happen? Who had said what to whom? Again, from the Romanovs, Jane Rondeau had this to say. And I've just realised I didn't do my Jane Rondeau voice when I quoted from her before, so let's put that right straight, straight away. What her crime is is yet a great secret. And she went on to add that. Most people think it must have been something very notorious, Otherwise, Her Majesty would never have sent them away in such a hurry. She finished by stating that the latest rumour was that the Empress had also had her niece examined to check to see if she was still a virgin. But the fact is that no one outside of the actual menage a trois really knew what had happened, and neither could anyone have known that during her period of confinement or disgrace, young Anna allegedly either started to fall in love with or become infatuated with one of her ladies-in-waiting, Julia von Mengden, and at another royal residence in St. Petersburg sat Elizabeth Petrovna, no doubt smiling slightly to herself as she waited patiently for events to unfold. But having taken decisive action, the Empress was now keen to get her niece and Anton of Brunswick to the altar as quickly as possible. Biron, though, was worried. And not just about the marriage, but before we get to what happened next, let's take a bit of a break and go on a brief diversion. Now, the Empress Anna Ivanovna may have been many things, but she was no fool, and she had turned out to be a pretty good and effective manager of her cabinet and senior advisers. OK, so maybe good and effective manager is stretching things as her approach was mostly hands-off. Nevertheless, Sherkaski, Osterman, Ushakov, Munich and of course Biron were still in situ and had proved to be an effective and trustworthy team. The only casualty had been old Gavriel Golovkin and that had been due to natural causes as the old miser had passed away aged 75 in 1734. But if you were to look closer you would have found out that Anna Ivanovna's team were anything but close themselves. Sherkaski was loyal, but was often ill, and even when he wasn't, he was happy to leave things in Osterman's capable hands. As for Osterman, he tended to do his own thing. It's said that whenever he made a statement on anything, it was so carefully and subtly worded that it could have had at least two different meanings, or perhaps no meaning at all. He always made sure, though, that the Empress was kept fully in the loop, even though most of the time... She didn't seem the least bit bothered or interested. Munich, as we know, was away fighting the Ottomans. He was an intense and emotional character and he often rubbed Anna up the wrong way, but she liked him and he had proved to be a highly effective field marshal. The only downside in all of this was that Biron hated his guts, mainly because he was effective and he was in the Empress's good books. We'll get back to Biron in a minute. 
Ushikov had spent his time, like most good secret police heads do, by working day and night to unearth plots both real and imagined, and traitors both real and imagined, paying particular attention, of course, to the Empress's cousin Elizabeth Petrovna. But in late 1738, his focus was diverted elsewhere. Remember that back in 1730, those members of the Supreme Privy Council that had tried to get Anna to accept the throne with all kinds of limits to her power, the Dolgorukis and Dmitri Kalitsin, had been arrested and sent to various locations of exile and house arrest. Well, since then, their numbers had been somewhat reduced. Alexei Dolgoruki, the father of Ivan, Peter II's favourite, and Yekaterina, who had been engaged to the young Tsar, had died in exile in 1734 in Beryozhov, northern Siberia. Dmitri Golitsyn had gotten off lightly with a sentence of house arrest, but in 1736 he was caught up in a conspiracy involving his son-in-law, which needn't concern us here. Anyway, due to his previous involvement in attempting to water down Anna's authority, he was retried and sentenced to death. However, at this point, the Empress stepped in and she reduced the punishment to life imprisonment and the confiscation of all of his estates. Unfortunately, though, Galitzin's health collapsed and three months later, in April 1737, he died in the Schlüsselberg Fortress. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yes. So that left Ivan, Ekaterina, and the two Vasilis. And in 1738, Ushikov received a report that Vasily Lukic Dolgoruki, who had been exiled to the Solovetsky Monastery in the Arctic North, had been making disparaging remarks about the Empress. Had he, though? Really? Well, we don't know, but later under questioning and probably torture, he confessed to forging Peter II's will, which meant that young Ivan Dolgoruki also fell under the spotlight, and he too confessed to the whole murky business with the will. In 1739, both underwent a further round of torture, and in October, they were beheaded in Veliki Novgorod. Following the executions, Ivan's sister Yekaterina, who'd originally been exiled with her father to Beryozhov, was moved to a more secure place of incarceration, a convent in what is probably my favourite Russian place name, Tomsk, in western Siberia and Marshal Vasily Vladimirovich Dolgoruki, who, remember, had told the rest of his family that he'd wanted nothing to do with their scheming, was exiled to life to the Solovetsky Monastery. 
1739. That's not the last, however, that we will hear of either Yekaterina or the Marshal. Anyway, with that all settled, let's get back to the troubled mind of Ernst Biron. Troubled because he'd started to get paranoid about his future. The Empress was now in her mid-forties, and while she was still in good health, she was noticeably slowing down, and Biron didn't fancy his chances if anything were to happen to her, because then he'd be without protection and in potential danger from Ostermann, Munich, and God knows who else. And so he needed to do two things, or one thing with two components to it, find an ally and secure his future. The first of these was relatively easy, as Biron had someone in mind. For months now, he'd been cultivating a friendship with a certain Artemy Volinsky, who was experienced, he'd held various diplomatic positions since Peter the Great's time, politically savvy, and on the same page as Biron regarding the future. Once Biron had made his mind up, he discussed things with Anna, and managed to persuade her that some fresh blood and an extra pair of experienced and capable hands wouldn't go amiss. And so, in 1738, and despite the protestations of Ostermann, Volinsky was promoted to the cabinet. Securing his own future, though, would be a much more difficult task, and brings us full circle, because it required the Empress's successor to produce an heir, and as we know, in 1738, she wasn't even married, let alone pregnant. So while Anna was still trying to get her niece and Anton of Brunswick to set a date, Biron came up with an alternative idea and suggested to the Empress that perhaps a marriage between Anna Leopoldovna and his own son, Peter, might be more palatable. Oh, and whilst he was at it, he chanced his arm and threw a curveball into the mix, Courland. The Duchy of Courland was to be Biron's insurance policy if everything else failed. What he wanted was an official position of his own that was located somewhere far enough away so that if things went really badly at some point in the future, he would have a Baltic bolt hole. But with all of this scheming, he had made two errors of judgment. The first was putting forward his son as a husband for Anna Leopoldovna. The Empress was torn. She wanted her niece married and didn't want to upset Biron, but knew that this revised wedding plan would be unpopular both at home and abroad. And so she gave her niece an ultimatum marry either the minor royal Anton of Brunswick or the non-royal Peter Biron, but make your mind up now or you'll no longer be my successor. And Anna Leopoldovna, realising that she'd finally run out of road, told her aunt that while she disliked Anton, the thought of marrying into Biron's family was a joke and a pretty bad one at that. Therefore, if she had to marry, it would be to Anton of Brunswick. The relieved Empress now had to break this news to Biron, but she softened the blow by promising to support his bid to become the next Duke of Courland. And Biron's second mistake? Well, that was putting his trust in Artemy Volinsky. You see, Volinsky was ambitious, and he'd been around long enough to get a sense of what Biron was up to, and judging that things between the Empress and her lover had cooled and were a little, let's say, awkward, he made his pitch to Anna for more responsibility and started to actively plot against Biron. And this worked, or seemed to. A relieved and happy Anna was open to his ideas. Her niece's wedding day had been finally set for the summer of 1739, 
the Dolgoruki plot had been uncovered, and Biron appeared to be content with the Courland compromise. She was on the crest of a wave. At last everything was going in the right direction, and her new counsellor was like a breath of fresh air, with his charm and his ideas. However, Volinsky had made a misjudgment of his own. Well, two actually. He was overconfident, bordering on arrogant, and he had misjudged the Empress. The overconfidence and arrogance exhibited itself during cabinet meetings, where he tried to dominate proceedings and oppose Biron's stance on pretty much everything. But outside of these formal sessions, he found it almost impossible to get time with the Empress, and when he did, she would fudge, prevaricate, and if possible, kick the can down the road, anything effectively to avoid making a decision. And unlike Osterman or Biron, Polinsky was either unwilling or, and this is the more likely scenario, unable to come up with an effective way of managing the boss. And he complained loudly, a little too loudly as it happens, to anyone who would listen, stating that the Empress was a fool who was incapable of making decisions or of governing the state. The main cause of the problem, apart from Anna, was the subject matter. Volinsky was demanding large-scale reform of the Russian state and a lessening or reduction of German influence upon the government, by which he meant Biron, Munich and Osterman. So when Biron inevitably found out what Volinsky was up to, he presented Anna with an ultimatum. Either he goes or I do. Which was a bit rich, seeing as he'd been instrumental in promoting Volinsky in the first place. Anna was in a quandary. And so she did what she did best and ignored the issue, but at least she had an excuse, because throughout the spring of 1739, there was a wedding to plan. The marriage of Anna Leopoldovna and Anton of Brunswick went ahead in the July without a hitch. There were no last-minute soap opera-style dramas, although many at the event observed that the bride treated her husband with disdain and wondered aloud how long the marriage could last and how productive it would be. But they didn't have long to wait. In November 1739, it was announced to a shocked and surprised Russian court that young Anna was pregnant, and you can understand their amazement. For six long years, Anna Leopoldovna had resisted every attempt to get her to marry. She had taken lovers of both sexes, was still known to be very close with her lady-in-waiting, Julia von Mengden, and quite obviously, according to most reports, she loathed her husband. But maybe, just maybe, those reports were wrong because, as we'll see in future episodes, this pregnancy wouldn't be the last. In the meantime, Volinsky had continued digging his own grave and in the spring of 1740, the Empress finally gave Biron the answer he wanted. He could stay, of course he could, and Volinsky could go. In April, Volinsky and his supporters were arrested by Yushikov's men and under torture he confessed to plotting the murders of Biron, Munich and Osterman, and to disparaging and disrespecting the Empress, and in June 1740 he was executed. And then in the August the miracle occurred. A healthy baby boy was born. He was named Ivan after his great-grandfather, Ivan V, and the Miloslavskis finally had their male heir. The Empress was overjoyed, but she now had a decision to make. Should her successor be her niece or her niece's son? But all of that could wait. It's September, 
1740. The Empress Anna, now 46, is happy, settled and content. Her niece, Anna Leopoldovna, had finally seen the light. She'd married her foreign-born prince, Anton Ulrich of Brunswick. They have a healthy month-old son. Miroslavsky Romanov's succession had been secured. And Elizabeth Petrovna? Well, frankly, who cares? And on that note, that's where we'll leave things for this episode. Join me next time when we'll be taking a look at what happened in St. Petersburg during the remaining three months of 1740 and throughout the following year. Without giving too much away, quite a lot is going to happen during the three remaining three months of 1740 and throughout the following year. So until then, keep your heads up and your chins down, or is it the other way around? Look after yourselves, and most importantly, stay safe. <laughs>